Thank you, Barass. What a blessing. Appreciate you preparing that, ministering to our hearts. And uh, you know, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be brass involved. Amen. The trump of God shall sound, and uh, the voice of the archangel will be heard. We'll ask the folks coming in from the choir and orchestra to find their, their place as you find your place in the Word of God. Maybe you're there already. John's Gospel, chapter 20, and then two verses from Matthew 28. I'm speaking on the subject today, Easter joy. Our hearts, I trust, are joyous already, but if not, I hope by the end of the sermon uh, you'll be in that frame of mind and heart. Jesus said, these words have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Joy is not just an emotion of our hearts. Usually we think it's that, but I hope before the end of the message you'll realize it's, it's something we experience on a rational level too. There's the joy of the understanding. John's Gospel chapter 20 verse 20 Jesus has appeared to his disciples that evening, it says in the foregoing verse, and he stands before them and says, peace be unto you. In verse 20, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. And notice the next phrase, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Matthew 28, we just read the first eight verses together. But I want to read verse 8 and 9 again, if I may. Matthew 28, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher, from the tomb, with fear and great joy. Those two things together. And did run to bring his disciples' word. I know it starts a new paragraph, but there's a reason I read verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. Do you know what that means? I'll tell you in a few minutes, okay? And they came and held him by his feet and worshiped him. The joy of Easter, the joy of the resurrection, I say it not just to put a good spin on things, but we as Christians ought to be the happiest people on the face of God's green earth. We really should. There's no place for dour faces. (laughs) There's no place for a depressed spirit among the people of God. The Lord's Day ought to be the happiest day of the week for us because it commemorates the resurrection of Jesus. That's the watershed moment of all history. What a day. Things will never be the same. David anticipated this very day when he wrote in Psalm 118, a great messianic psalm, and verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made, let us rejoice, or we will rejoice and be glad in it. That verse is often quoted on Sunday, and it, it deserves to be. It's referring to the day of Jesus' resurrection. The psalmist wasn't just talking about the Jewish Sabbath. He wasn't just talking about one of the great feast days. He was talking about the coming resurrection of God's anointed, the Messiah. And that was when, as other parts of the psalm bring out, that was when the stone which the builders refused became the headstone of the corner. It was a day of rejoicing, of superlative joy. Shouts went up when the headstone of the temple was put in place. Sadly, let's be honest, few have entered into the joy of Christ's resurrection. Relatively few. 
Maybe you're happy about it. I hope you are. But in all likelihood, your neighbor is not. In fact, millions around the world today, though it's Easter Sunday, are kissing a crucifix and weeping. Instead of rejoicing over an empty tomb, (laughs) they're commemorating a dead Christ who has no power to help them if he can't help himself. I am a patriotic preacher. I don't apologize for saying that. I'm grateful for our founding fathers, including Thomas Jefferson. But maybe you're aware of it, maybe you aren't. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, our third president, generally regarded as a brilliant mind, man, while he admired the moral aspects of the New Testament, he rejected Jesus' miracles. He compiled his own 82-page document that he cut and pasted together in which he omitted the gospels that he could not accept. He rejected the miracles, other parts of the New Testament. Thomas Jefferson's New Testament ended this way. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Period. What a sad, deluded conclusion. But that's as far as Thomas Jefferson's reason, brilliant as it was, unaided by the Scriptures, could take him. Sadly, millions of others are just as clueless. But my brothers and sisters, I remind you today, we serve a living Christ who is able to subdue all things unto himself. And by virtue of the fact that he did rise from the dead, as Paul preached on Mars Hill, he will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And if this one can defeat death, the king of terrors, what can he not do? So how can we be discouraged? How can we be defeated unless we're on the side of Satan and sin? My desire for you today is to share in the true joy of Easter. And so the rest of the message will answer the question, what kind of joy is that? Is it joy of finding some money in an Easter egg? I think you know that's not it. What kind of joy is Easter joy? First of all, it is the joy of God Himself. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 is often quoted, and it deserves to be, where the great layman said, the joy of the Lord is your strength, as he exhorted the workers on the wall, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what sustains you. But the joy of the Lord isn't just something that that God gives, it's something God has. It's the joy He possesses Himself. Do you think God's a happy God? Are you worried that you might have to You might catch him in a bad mood. Maybe you feel that way about your dad or mom. But you don't have to feel that way about your heavenly father. God is not a grouch. He's not miserable, as we say in the Cayman Islands. 
He is eternally happy in himself. Twice in the book of Romans, Paul gives a mini doxology in which he refers to God as the one who is blessed forever. And that word blessed could also be rendered happy. God's always happy. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but he's always happy regardless of what happens to you or me. It's just who he is. The joy of God. The joy of God is not conditional on anything we feel or that happens to us. And so if we get the joy of God ourselves, even as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, though we, quoting from the Old Testament, though we be killed all the day long and are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Nothing can separate us from His love. That's something to rejoice about. If you have that kind of joy, you possess the very joy of God. It's strong. It's indestructible because it is eternal. God is happy in Himself. Another thing about the joy of God is He's supremely happy in Christ. The Apostle Peter referred to His being an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus. What a mountain peak experience literally that was as Peter, James, and John went up with Christ into that mountain. We don't know which one it was, one of the snow-capped mountains. And Peter never forgot it. John never forgot it. James never forgot it. Peter referred to it later in his second epistle. He said, for he received from God the Father, Jesus, honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father was happy in His Son Jesus. He said something very similar to that at His baptism. Now, what's so significant about the transfiguration? Well, it's a sneak preview of the glorification of Jesus. So, when did the process of glorifying Jesus begin? It began at His resurrection. In writing to the saints at Philippi, The Apostle Paul referred to that resurrection body in chapter 3, verse 21, as Jesus' own glorious or glorified body, literally the body of glory. May I remind you that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, and He is a man. He is a glorified man in His resurrection body. And when the father raised his son from the dead, it proved that he was happy, supremely happy and pleased in his son Jesus. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God exalted him. That stone that was rejected has become the headstone, the chief cornerstone. Our Lord died. He really died. He didn't just swoon. He died. He was buried. His foes were so afraid that he would rise again and his disciples would claim that's what happened. They rolled a stone to block the tomb's entrance. They sealed it. They set an armed guard 24-7. But as we sang just a few moments ago, it was all in vain. Vainly they watched his bed. 
On the third day, hallelujah, up from the grave he arose. That tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was just borrowed. It was a temporary holding tank. Who could hold the one who is the resurrection and the life? Nobody. God is happy in himself. God is supremely happy in Jesus, but that's not all. He is expressively happy in his own. I won't have you turn there because some of you wouldn't find it till the end of the service. But in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible, the, this minor prophet says to a restored Israel, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Does God sing? Evidently he does. He sings over us. Like a mother sings a lullaby over her baby, God will sing over the ones he loves. God is so happy over his own that he's become their bridegroom to redeem and purify them. And so Isaiah 62 verse 5 speaks of how God will rejoice over a restored Israel as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride. Let's not forget these things. The Bible so clearly tells us the joy of God. We can enter into that. We can have the joy of God. But it's another kind of joy, and you probably know where I'm going. It's the joy of Christ. The joy of Christ. You say, well, he was a man of sorrows. Yeah, he he experienced that so that we could enter into his joy, but he was also joyful in spirit, the Bible says, even as he was a man of sorrows outwardly. And in Hebrews chapter 12, if you turn there, I want you to see a verse. It's puzzled me for a long time. I believe I have a little bit of an idea what it means. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the, what's that next word, class? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he was the man of sorrows. He was in mortal agony as he hung upon the cross. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, that he was able to rejoice in spirit. I love to ponder that phrase. I won't have you turn to that passage, but it's in the context of Jesus talking to the 70 who returned from a short-term mission trip. Where they done miracles, they're all ecstatic. They said, God, uh, Jesus said, your name, we were able to cast out demons. They were on cloud nine, but he brought them back down to earth real quickly. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Don't rejoice in your power over demons. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing to rejoice about. Judas cast out demons, but he's in hell. Oh, we need the joy that Jesus had inwardly. It was prophesied in Psalm 45, 6 and 7 that he would be anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, above his equals, his peers. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that the biblical custom at Oriental feasts, the oil would be poured on the head of distinguished and welcomed guests. Olive oil. As a reward for his work, the, the f- 
Father anointed Jesus the Son with superior joy. And according to Hebrews 12, verse 2, if I understand this at all, even as Jesus was experiencing all the horrors and the torture of Golgotha, the asphyxiation, the fever, the pain, the dehydration, the excruciating thirst, he was happier than any man has ever been. Why? The Bible gives three reasons. Number one, he was happy because he was finishing the Father's will. He had set it in prospect in the high priestly prayer of John 17, which he prayed a short time before. He said, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And now glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Oh, how Jesus delighted to do the Father's will. He didn't have to just force himself. We read in Psalm 40, verse 8, words that are ascribed to Jesus in the, by the writer of the book of Hebrews, these words, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And what's the picture there? Very quickly, it's the picture of the indentured servant, the Hebrew servant, who declined his freedom even though he was entitled to it, and that, that year of Jubilee would come around, and he could go free if he wanted to, but no, he loved his master so well he wanted to remain a bond slave, a love slave, and so his master would take him against a door, and he would take an awl and bore his ear through to the door. That was the mark that he was willing to serve his master the rest of his life, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Do you want to serve Jesus? Is there something on the inside that makes you want to? Jesus found his freedom in being a slave to his father. And so he gave his life willingly. He said in John chapter 10, if you just jot these verses down, I'm, I'm, reciting, I'm, I'm get, referring to a lot of passages. I can't have you turn to all of them. You'll forgive me. I like to have you see them if possible. But in John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, he says this, therefore doth my father love me, verse 17, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. It wasn't the, the Roman soldiers. It wasn't the Jewish Sanhedrin. No man took his life from me. He said, I lay it down of myself. I have power, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. He delighted to do the will of his Father. And that will went through Golgotha. A book was published in 1981 by a Canadian World War II veteran who lost his arm on the European front. And in it, he told how he would walk down the streets of his hometown, and when people saw his empty sleeve just flapping in the breeze, their hearts were touched, and they would commiserate, and they would try to comfort him for the loss of his arm. You know how he responded? I love this. He would say it over and over again, I didn't lose it. I gave it. Jesus didn't lose his life on Calvary. He gave it. He gave it to obey his Father. He endured the cross. 
He wasn't numb to the pain. He refused to take the sedative, the sour wine with myrrh in it, because he had to taste the bitter dregs of the cup God gave him to the bottom for you and for me. But you know what? It was for the joy that was set before him he endured that. What was that joy? It was the joy of resurrection. Because he said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. Jesus was not only the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he was the risen lamb upon the throne from all eternity past. I know we're dignified Baptists, but if somebody really gets happy in Jesus, go ahead and say hallelujah. It won't bother me a bit. That's something to shout about. And Jesus rejoiced in spirit in anticipation of his exaltation. Jesus suffered acutely, awfully upon the cross. Torture, blood loss, dehydration dislocation of his bones. He could look at his bones and they all stared at him. He experienced psychological shaming and humiliation. Worst of all, he experienced alienation by his own father for six hours. How could he do that? I'll tell you how he could do that. It was for the joy that was set before him. Joy of resurrection, the joy of exaltation, of being exalted to the right hand of the Father, just like those Old Testament worthies that are mentioned, enumerated, described in Hebrews chapter 11, Jesus had run the race that was set before him. He had attained the prize, and what was the prize? It was the joy awaiting him at the Father's right hand. That's where the throne of God is. Jesus was running for joy and reward. I read this morning, to get my heart ready for celebrating Easter, I read that marvelous 16th Psalm. Would you turn there, please, quickly? Psalm 16, a great messianic psalm that closes with words quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost and ascribed to Jesus in relation to his resurrection. A marvelous prophecy here. Psalm 16, these are Jesus' words himself in verse number 10. Well, we can start in verse 9, if we can do that, fellows, on the screen. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, in Sheol, in the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is what Jesus said. This is the sentiments of the God-man. First of all, it establishes beyond any doubt Jesus really died. As I said already, people that think he just swooned, you know, somehow faked it and revived in the grave. Listen, if he wasn't dead by the time the soldiers uh, came to uh, break the bones of the other uh, malefactors and thrust a spear into Jesus' side and out came blood and water, if he wasn't dead by then, he sure did die then. Jesus really died. 
He was so weak from scourging and dehydration and blood loss even before his crucifixion that he couldn't carry his own cross. A lifeless corpse was put into that borrowed sepulcher. But it didn't remain long enough for any decay to set in. Thank God he will never die again. Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. And that he died unto sin once, the Bible says. In the Greek that means once for all. He died once for all. No more death. Only glory. From the moment Jesus died, the Father said, that's the last you're going to show dishonor to my son. He put his body in a borrowed tomb of a rich man. No more disrespect. Jesus knew that his Father would not leave his soul in hell. He would raise him up. I think there's another reason Jesus rejoiced. And it was alluded to in that marvelous 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And again, I'll just quote it because we're going back and forth so much. And that is this. Jesus foresaw his spiritual seed. That's you and me if we're saved. I love Isaiah 53. If you've been around friendship for a few years, you know any excuse I can get, I go back to Isaiah 53. It's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It is amazing. It is history pre-written. The Bible says in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord, it pleased Jehovah to bruise him, the suffering servant, that's Jesus. He hath put him to grief. And then it says this, which is kind of obscure. You don't hear a whole lot of people preaching on this phrase. We can understand a lot of things that are said in Isaiah 53. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We can understand that. But here's a phrase we don't hear very often. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his posterity. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Could I ask you, what was the joy that offset the shame and the horrors Jesus experienced as he hung on the cross of Calvary? What caused Jesus to be satisfied, even as he saw the travail of his own soul? Please listen carefully. Don't miss this. It was the joy of looking both backwards to the Old Testament area and forwards and seeing the millions of souls who would be justified by his death and resurrection. You say, well, the Bible says that there's a broad way that leads to destruction Many that go in there at, only a few go in that narrow way. And so there's going to be a whole lot more people in hell than in heaven. I'm not so sure. Think about all the babies aborted. Think about all the unaccountable infants that never reach the age of accountability. Think of the martyrs. I don't think God's going to be outdone by the devil. There's a whole army of redeemed ones. And Jesus saw that as he hung on the cross. And for the joy of that, he endured everything. I remind you, it was the blood of Jesus that 
takes away the sin of the world. For thousands of years, the Old Testament, ever since the sacrificial system had been inaugurated, on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, still the Jewish calendar, the high priest would go in, and only the high priest could go in. He had to lay aside his outward festive garments. He had to put on garments of humiliation. The people outside would tie a rope to him because if he didn't come out on his own, they'd have to pull him out. Nobody dared go into the Holy of Holies. He had bells and pomegranates on the fringes of his garment. And so they would hear the tinkling of the bells as he walked. And he'd offer a lamb first for himself because he was a sinner too. He'd offer a goat. Then he'd offer an innocent animal for the sins of the people. And the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And if he came out to the people, a shout would go up. Why? Because our sins have been covered for one more year. But when Jesus came on the scene, the Lamb of God, what did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God, not who covers the sins of the world, but who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of Jesus can do that, and only the blood of Jesus. And as he saw the multitudes that would be redeemed by his blood, he despised the shame of crucifixion. It's a very strong expression. I looked it up, despising the shame. It's an active emotion, not something Jesus received passively. The meaning of the Greek is to think down upon or to think slightly of. Hallelujah, Jesus was able to lightly consider all the horrific shame of Calvary, of the death by crucifixion. The Romans were ingenious at cruelty, and they invented crucifixion. And to become, he became a curse for the sins of the world. How did he do that? He set over against it joy. He compared the two. His was the joy of accomplishment, fully accomplishing his Father's will. His was the joy of anticipation. He was anticipating being exalted at the right hand of the Father once he was raised from the dead. His was the joy of acceptance, the millions of his spiritual seed that would be justified by his blood, that would be accepted in the Beloved. So Jesus chose joy. He chose joy because he saw his seed. And so the $64,000 question is this, are you one of his posterity? Oh, you say, well, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, they put that song together, you know, we are the, the people, we, we're all saved, we're all the children of God. Um, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson might have said that, but I don't see that in this book. Jesus turned to some people in his day and he said, ye are of your father the devil. So who are you going to believe? Jesus or some pop star? Do you know you're part of his seed? Have you accepted his work of bleeding and dying in your place? Easter joy, the very joy of Christ, can be yours, but it's not automatic. What kind of joy was it? that Jesus 
experience that we can have in Easter, that we can have, it's the joy of his disciples. I'm talking about the immediate disciples. When Jesus appeared to the eleven later that same Sunday that he arose, as you put combine all the accounts, and I urge you to do that. I think the ladies' Sunday school class, they had a great discussion about that. It, they divided up into groups, and each one took, you know, one of the gospel accounts, and they put them together. And you say there are differences. Yeah, it's a good thing there are differences. It shows that they didn't collude with each other, the, the gospel writers. It takes all four of them to help us understand what really happened. And the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 20, here's 2020 vision, all right? Spiritual vision. When Jesus showed them his hands and his side, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord, the resurrected Christ. Remember, Jesus had already told them in his discourse on the vine and the branches not long before, as it's related in John chapter 15, verse 11, he said, if you abide in me and I abide, and, and I abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. And it says there, these things, Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Was he just tantalizing them? Or was he making a valid offer? Could they? Could you? Could I? Could we enter into the very joy of Jesus even now? Jesus says yes. In fact, he commands us to. The reason I read Matthew 28, verse 9 a while ago, even though it starts a new paragraph, we didn't read it at the beginning of the service, when it says that as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail, and they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Often we look at those words, all hail, and in the Greek, it's it, it does speak of a, of a common salutation that was used either upon greeting or upon leaving one another. Most English Bibles will, will, will translate it greetings, but I challenge you to look that up in the Greek a little bit further. It's an active verb, a primary verb that means, are you ready? Be glad. Rejoice. That's what Jesus said when he saw his disciples. And Matthew's the only one who tells us that. Why did he need to say that? Well, they were sad. I mean, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus joined them and they didn't know who he was, they were, he asked them, why are you so sad? All their hopes had been dashed. All their expectations, they thought, had been misplaced. But now the sight of the risen Lord, their master, relieved their anxieties. It revived their dashed hopes. It dispelled their fears. And all of a sudden it dawned on them. It is true what the women were telling us. Our master is alive. He has overcome death. They had a running fit. What a reassuring sight it was to see Jesus. Do you think maybe the statute of limitations has not run out on that joy? Do you think God might let us get in on it too? Oh, I think so. I think he wants us to. I think he commands us to. Us. Very quickly, this is a joy that causes, or is caused by confidence in Christian doctrine. In several places in the Gospels, it says that once Jesus was risen from the dead, the disciples understood for the first time certain aspects of his teaching. 
I mean, they weren't inferior in intelligence. These were smart people. These were fishermen. One of them was a, an accountant, a tax collector. Um, don't, don't get the idea that these were just a ragtag bunch of hillbillies. No, they were smart people. But they still needed the Holy Spirit. They were blind as bats when Jesus tried to tell them certain things. They didn't get it. Even when he came right out plainly and said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise from the dead the third day. It went in one ear and out the other. Until Jesus breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden they got it. The illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now it all made sense. And so Paul could write later in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 and say, If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's all predicated upon this, folks. If Jesus didn't really rise, uh, rise out of that tomb on the third day, listen, I better hang up my preaching shoes and go make an honest living. But if he arose then the doctrines of the Christian faith are true. They're not just some kind of abstract, high-sounding theology. And we will be held accountable for them. And yes, the mind has its own joy, as well as the heart. The understanding has its joy. Think of that even in the natural realm. Take a chemist who's diligent. We have some here today, Brother Gary and others whose diligent research and experimentation at last uncovers or explains a hidden property in a certain drug that holds the promise of saving lives. The joy of the understanding. Take a historian who can show that what was primarily considered mere conjecture for centuries is substantiated by the discovery of some authenticated document or artifact. You don't think he's happy in the mind? You better think again. Oh, these men know what joy is, the joy of understanding, as well as the joy of emotion. It causes confidence in Christian doctrine, our joy. It produces hope in being glorified together. And my time is gone. I know it's after 12. Some people, you lose them. I mean, you're already at the restaurant. Uh, Hope in being glorified together. I have just time enough to give you two verses. I hope you'll jot them down. I hope you'll read them later. Romans 5, verse 2. Romans 5, verse 2, first of all. By whom, Jesus, also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, I tell you, this is what motivates the true child of God. Standing in hope of the glory of God. We talk about heaven, but so often we just we use superficial things. I'll say it again. I've said it before. It's not the streets of gold that tantalize me. I, I can't imagine transparent gold. I'm sure I'm going to be impressed by it. I can't imagine a gate made of one big pearl. But honestly, that, that doesn't hold a whole lot of fascination for me. I want to see Jesus. And I want to be glorified together with him. 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. What a privilege. 
You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you've been born again, you've been born from above. You're born into the family of God. You're a, you're, you're a brother of Jesus Christ. You're a, a child of God. And you can say that without any hesitation. But hey, don't stop there. It goes on to say, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. As Sharon said in her interview, not seeing through a glass darkly, that's what we do through the Word of God. Thank God for that. But one of these days, we're going to have a different set of apparatus, and we'll be able to see Him as He is, face to face. Where? In heaven, a place of perfect bliss. Now, I remind you, heaven is a real place. It's not just a state of mind. It's the abode of God. It's where the risen Lamb sits on His throne right now. It's a perfect place. You and your sin can't get in, both, both of you. One, of, one or the other is going to have to go. Nothing that defiles will enter that place We will serve Him. We will worship Him. We're not going to just float around on clouds. His servants shall serve Him and we'll never get tired doing it. Millions are already there and they beckon us to follow them. Where? Heaven. How? In resurrected bodies. Just like Jesus' body. When Jesus comes again, The dead will be resurrected. First, you've heard it said, I don't know if this is the reason, but they've got six feet further to go. But then we'll be changed. It'll happen so fast you'll wonder where you've been. These bodies will will be just like Jesus' own glorified body, immortal, powerful, unlimited Whereas in the millennium, men will be delivered partially from the curse, but we will be delivered completely from the curse that makes us grow old and forgetful and fearful. The joy of the disciples. Can you imagine what it will be like to wake up in heaven and see our loved ones, see Jesus? Stories told of of a ship that was lost at sea. Among those shipwrecked of this sailing schooner was a, a father and his young son. They knew the ship was in trouble. They had climbed the rigging, both of them. Big wave came over them. The stronger father was able to hold on to the rigging. The boy was dashed down. His father lost sight of him. He thought he was hopelessly lost. The next day, the father was brought ashore from the rigging. He was semi-conscious. He was totally exhausted. He was laid in a bed in a fisherman's hut. A number of hours passed before he awoke. But when he did, he saw lying beside him his own boy. How glorious it will be to wake up in heaven and find our loved ones beside us, all coming from the same shipwreck scene on this earth. Don't get excited about things down here. 
Let our joy be Easter joy, a joy you can have all year long, a joy that's independent of the circumstances, the joy that Jesus has, he rejoiced in spirit. Yeah, I know we're surrounded by disillusionment, despair, derision, dysfunctionality, a whole lot of things start with D there. You don't have to be a preacher who can alliterate. We're surrounded by all that. And that's all caused by the sin of a broken world. But we can still rejoice in the face of all that. You know why? Because almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus confronted sin, death, Satan, head on, and won. And we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's pray. Father, would you evermore give us this joy? the joy of resurrection, the joy of God himself, the joy of Jesus, even as he hung on the cross, the joy of the disciples when the Holy Spirit illuminated their hearts and minds. If there's one here today really can't say I know that I have I can have that joy because they don't know they're saved they don't know the joy of salvation they don't know the joy of sins forgiven oh help them to see that can take place today may they repent of their sin may they trust in the one who suffered in their place took all their hell so that they could go to heaven may they enter into that joy the joy of the Lord in Jesus name we pray amen